0: The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources.
1: Turning your Bibles if you would to Matthew chapter 9. We're looking this morning at verses 35 through 38, the compassion of the Lord of the harvest. I can still see in my mind's eye uh, a harvest so plentiful that I, I wondered, being a city boy, how they were ever going to take it in. I used to drive from Louisville up to Grand Rapids, Michigan, through the uh, cornfields of Indiana. And uh, I remember one farm so huge that it just stretched until the earth curved, and and the corn was getting ripe, it was almost time for the harvest, and uh, I remember commenting to, a, to the friend that I was driving up with, how are they going to take it all in? He said, well, they have big combine machines. I said, what's that? He said, you've never seen one? They just kind of churn through and they're able to just harvest in an incredible way. But I was overwhelmed that day, I was, I was amazed, and I was thinking, how are they going to take in this harvest? How can it be done? Well, that's corn. And uh, I think the same thing is true. If you ever go to one of those huge wheat farms out in Kansas or in other places, you just see it as far as the earth goes. The harvest is plentiful. How are they going to take it in? But I had the same feeling another day, and it was on a mission trip when I was in the far, far western part of China in a city called Kashgar. It's an ancient city. It's right on the Silk Road where Marco Polo went, and it developed and thrived in that time, but it seems literally in the middle of nowhere. You have to travel three days by bus, one of the most dangerous bus rides I've ever taken in my life. I'll never forget it. We were driving along a ravine, and I looked down and saw a bus just like the one I was on at the bottom of the ravine, 500 feet down. It wasn't even rusty yet. And then there was the uh, driver chugging along, sometimes falling asleep a little bit. And uh, Well, we prayed a lot. And we were trusting God to get us there. But we finally got to Kashgar. And they told us that the bazaar was coming up. It was a monthly thing. And people would come from miles around to the big bazaar. And so we were excited. It was on a Sunday. And we went by donkey cart, And uh, we went. And there were, you know, a couple hundred people at this bazaar. And I said, this is not that impressive. I said, no, this isn't the bazaar. You have to go downtown to the center of the city. Well, we went there. And then we saw what they were talking about. Probably tens of thousands of Uyghur people, there are Chinese Muslims that were there. So many people that I was immediately overwhelmed. I felt like I was in a sea of humanity. Look on the cover of your bulletin. There's a photo there of some Hindu uh, pilgrims in India. And uh, that is just a little part of the picture I saw in the National Geographic magazine of that that pilgrimage that those Hindus take. Well, that was what it was like for me that morning in Kashgar. And I was overwhelmed, first of all, with feeling like I was a drop in an endless sea of humanity. And I thought, how can it be true, what David wrote in Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. How can that be true of all of us? How can you know us that well? It boggled my mind and made me feel sick to my stomach. I thought to myself, more than that, we are here as... Pseudo-missionaries, not really only there for a week, we couldn't really speak the language. We knew that the Uyghur people did not really know Jesus. They knew of a Jesus in the uh, Muslim accounts, but they didn't know the Jesus who really is. The creator of the ends of the earth, the savior of the world. They didn't know him. And so they were lost. And I stood there feeling overwhelmed. And I said, how can you do it? And I guess to some degree I want to put that feeling inside you today. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask, beseech the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. We're supposed to feel amazed. We're supposed to feel overwhelmed. And then we're supposed to get on our knees, on our faces before God and ask him to do something about it. But first, we have to have a glimpse into the heart of the king ...of the kingdom of heaven, Jesus Christ. Because it all begins with compassion, doesn't it? Jesus has compassion. He looks out, he sees them in a way that no one else can. And so for me personally, it all begins with having the compassion of Jesus. And we only get it as we read in the scripture. We see in verse 35 uh, an assessment of Jesus' comprehensive ministry... It says that Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom of heaven and healing every disease and every sickness among the people. And so Jesus is there ministering. It's a comprehensive ministry that he's doing. We've been seeing in in Matthew's gospel how Matthew has been giving us the credentials of Jesus Christ as the king of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is fit to be king of the kingdom of heaven. And we've seen that. But this is one of those summary statements where after, after all the miracles that he's been showing us in Matthew 8 and in Matthew 9, the healing of the centurion's servant, the healing of Peter's mother-in-law from a fever, uh, the stilling of the storm, the healing of the demoniac of the Gadarenes, so powerful he could break... He could break... Uh, Chains, iron chains, a legion of demons inside him, five, six thousand demons, and Jesus cast them out with a single word. We've seen the power of Jesus Christ. We've seen his compassion. And so, after giving us all this evidence, he sums it up here in verse 35, giving a, a glimpse of Christ's comprehensive ministry. Jesus did everything that the Heavenly Father wanted him to do. Isn't that incredible? Have you ever had a day in which you finished and you lay, laid your head on your pillow, and you could say to the Heavenly Father, Father, I did everything you wanted me to do today. I didn't leave anything out. All of the work that you had for me to do today, I did it. Can you think of one day in which you could have said that honestly to God? Jesus lived his whole life that way. And so at the end of his life, in John 17:4, he prays to his Heavenly Father, and he says, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Isn't that amazing? Not just a day, not a month, not a year, but a whole lifetime of works, and Jesus did them all perfectly. Comprehensive ministry. Now, it's comprehensive in scope in that he went to every town. Now, Jesus was not sent into the entire world at that point. Understand this. His ministry was focused, it was concentrated on the Jews, the people of Israel. He says in in Matthew 15, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. He has a very concentrated focus. He knows he's not sent to the Gentiles at this point. But within that call, he was comprehensive. He went to every town. He went to every village. Verse 35 in the Greek, he was continually traveling about, going from town to town. He had an itinerating ministry. He didn't stay in one place. As a matter of fact, as I read through the gospel accounts, especially Matthew, Mark, and Luke, I only find one time that people come to Jesus with a need, and he chooses not to meet it. And that was a time that he began in his preaching ministry in Luke chapter 4. Jesus goes out to a solitary place. The people in that town are looking for him, and they come and say, Come back in our town and stay here and preach. They wanted him as their private prophet, I guess. And Jesus said, I can't. I was sent by God to preach to every town and village, and that's what I must do. And so he left that area and went to the next town. A comprehensive ministry. He was reaching out. It was comprehensive also in content. What did he do as he went from place to place? He was teaching and he was preaching the kingdom of heaven. We undervalue teaching and preaching today. There are certain types of churches that are getting away from preaching. They're getting away from teaching. It's too authoritative. People instead want entertainment, they want skits, they want videos, they want other things. Jesus did not undervalue teaching and preaching, not at all. As a matter of fact, in a parallel account in Mark's gospel, he landed at one point and saw a huge crowd. And let me read so you see the parallel here. In Mark 6.34, when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd, so he began teaching them many things. Do you see the significance of that? Jesus' compassion flowed out through his teaching ministry. That's how he showed his compassion is by teaching them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They needed teaching. What was the next thing he did in Mark's gospel? He fed the 5,000. Do you see the priority structure in Jesus? Give them the teaching first. The eating will wait. <laughs> Give them the teaching. And so he taught them and then he fed them fed the 5,000. So we see the comprehensive teaching ministry of Jesus. Now, what was the focus? What was the content? It was the kingdom of heaven. It was a comprehensive topic. What does this mean, the kingdom of heaven? It's the place where God rules over willing subjects. The place where God rules over people who are delighted to have God rule over them. Now, God is sovereign over the whole surface of the earth, is he not? The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to him. But the kingdom of heaven advances when people willingly, gladly turn and put their lives in subjection to his rule. That's the advancement of the kingdom of heaven. And so it's the place wherever God rules over people who are glad that he's ruling over them. Are you glad today that Jesus is your king? If you are, you're a Christian. You're delighted that you have such a king as Jesus Christ. You want to hear more about him. You want to find out more about his attributes and his natures because he is the absolute perfect king for the kingdom of heaven. And so you're part of it. And so everywhere Jesus went, he preached the kingdom from the beginning in Matthew 4.17. From that time on, it says Jesus began to preach. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And then in, in Matthew 4.23, Jesus went out, went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom. He begins the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5.3, Blessed are the poor in spirit of the spiritual beggars, for what? Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's preaching the kingdom. He warned at one point about the Pharisees. He said in Matthew 5:20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and teaches the law, you will by no means enter into the kingdom of heaven. So the kingdom of heaven is something you enter into. You have to enter in at some point. And he said to people who are tempted to be anxious about what they eat and what they wear, he said, seek first what? The kingdom of God and all of these things will be added to you as well. And so the kingdom of heaven was the focus of Jesus' teaching ministry. Later on in Matthew, in chapter 13, he's going to get to a bunch of parables. And all of them are focused on the kingdom, aren't they? The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and then hid it again. And then in his joy, went out and sold everything he had and bought that field. The kingdom of heaven is like a, a pearl of great value. When a man found it, he sold everything he had and bought that pearl. All of these things were designed to teach us about the kingdom. It was the center, the content of his teaching. And so as he went about from place to place in Judea, he was preaching in all their synagogues, one place after another, the kingdom. Comprehensive preaching ministry. But it was also a comprehensive ministry in terms of healing power. Matthew tells us he was healing every disease and every sickness among the people. Not only did he teach them powerfully, but he did powerful acts, powerful miracles. The very likes of which nobody had ever seen before. Healing a blind man, which we discussed last time. The power of Jesus Christ. He just touches their blind eyes and instantly they can see. How many of you are worried about the West Nile virus? What is the West Nile virus? I don't know. It's just another thing to be worried about, right? I don't think so. But I'll tell you this, the Center for Disease Control will tell us all kinds of miracles that are, I mean, all kinds of of, um, diseases that are are incurable. Nobody knows what to do about AIDS. Nobody knows what to do about Ebola or mad cow disease, which people can get. And they don't know how to cure them. Jesus could cure anything. Every disease, every sickness. There was never a disease he meant that he couldn't cure. He could just touch an AIDS victim right now, just touch him and they're instantly cured. There was no limit to his healing power. Comprehensive. He he, he stresses it. Look at it again in verse 35. Healing every disease, healing every sickness. Okay, we get it. There was nothing he could not do. The comprehensive ministry of Jesus Christ. And so we have a summary. A life of kingly power in word and deed. Now in the world, kings are known for their power. But our king is known for more than just power, is he not? He's known also for compassion. And to that, Matthew now turns. And it's a very interesting shift we get because this is the end of his his concentrated account of Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry. They're going to get more later, but in a minute, we're going to see how Jesus begins to involve his disciples in his worldwide work. The advance of the kingdom of heaven is going to be done through other people. We are called on to advance his kingdom. And so he's going to involve them first in the prayer ministry, and then he's going to send out 12 in Matthew 10 to do ministry in his name. Jesus begins it all, though, with a compassionate vision. Look at verse 36. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. It all began with a specific vision that only Jesus had, an ability to look right down into your heart and see what your real needs are. He could look at a person and see things that no one else could see. In John chapter 1, when Nathanael comes to Jesus and and, uh, Jesus says of him now, Nathanael, here is a true Israelite in whom there's no guile. He's not a con artist. He is what he appears to be. Hmm. That's very interesting, Jesus. How do you know me? Well, when Philip called you under the fig tree, I looked at you. I looked at you. And I knew you completely. I know your heart. Just by looking. In John chapter 2, it says, Many people were claiming Jesus. They were saying they believe in Jesus. And Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about what was in man because he himself knew what was in their hearts. He knew who they were. And so he had a specialized vision. And when he looked out over that crowd, he saw things no one else could see. He looked with a compassionate vision. He looked at their souls. And he was torn up. Inside over it. Listen to what John MacArthur puts, says about this. He says the divine eyes of Jesus saw infinitely greater need in their lives, a need that far surpassed a A withered arm or a bleeding body a possessed mind blind eyes or deaf ears far greater than that he sympathized with their physical pains too and would have been deeply moved had that been their only afflictions but in seeing the multitudes jesus saw the deepness and pervasiveness of their sin and the desperate plight of their spiritual blindness and lostness and consequently he felt compassion for them as only God can feel he cared for them because he was God incarnate and it is God's nature to love because God is love that's a compassionate vision of Jesus Christ he could see things that no one else could see and so it says he was literally moved with compassion. Now, in the Hebrew mindset, the heart is the seat of the logic. It's the seat of the, of the will, the seat of the choosing. As a man thinks in his heart, so he is. It was the bowels that were the, the, so, the seat of emotion and passion. And that's the, we get an indication of that in the Greek. That, that Jesus was moved in his, in his gut, if you would. He had a gut reaction, a feeling inside of compassion. It moved him physically. He was hurting for them. Now, the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, they had their gods just up on, up in Olympus, Mount Olympus. And they, they prized something about them. That was their apatheia, their inability to be moved by what was going on earth. They were just so far separate from us. They're up in the heavenlies, from which we get the word what? Apathetic. The Greek gods were apathetic. They didn't feel anything. Hindu gods, the same way, no compassion. Buddhism teaches that we have to get away from suffering and pain, and so there's no desire whatsoever for compassion. We're trying to get away from that, actually. Now, Islam says that Allah is compassionate, but the trail of blood that Islam has left through history belies the fact. The fact of the matter is, however, our God is gracious and compassionate, is he not? He is a compassionate being. And so God said to Moses, I have indeed seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. And I'm concerned about them, about their slavery and their suffering. And so I'm going to send you to get them out. And what does he say to the prophet Jonah about the Ninevites? He said, Nineveh has over 120,000 men who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and women and children, and a great many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? Compassionate for the Jews, compassionate also for the Gentiles. And so it is that when Jesus came as a perfect reflection of his Father, a perfect reflection of him, that he would demonstrate compassion as well. Christ stood over Jerusalem and wept. He wept. He wept in front of Martha and Mary at the death of their brother Lazarus. He was a compassionate being, he felt deeply. And for that reason, I think Jesus was constantly touching people, right? He was touching their blind eyes. He was touching their their withered hands or their leprous flesh. He was touching them because he was compassionate. He was moved. He wanted to interact with them. That's the way he was. But what moves him here? Well, it's the sheep's condition. Look again at verse 36. (laughs) When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. People, in the Bible at least are like sheep does that offend you does that hurt your (laughs) self-esteem that God thinks of you like sheep we were at a conference this week and um, one of the speakers said that sheep have a 2d problem they're dumb and they're defenseless I thought that's good but I would add a third so they have a 3d problem they're also delicious so you've got three a threefold problem right and so they're very very ready and fit for the prey right the wolves are surrounded and they're ready to, to devour them. And there's nothing they can do about it. And meanwhile, they're just following their nose to the next tuft of grass. Just the next thing. That's what they're following. They get themselves tangled up in briars or surrounded by, by packs of, of dogs or wolves. And there's nothing that they can do. They're dumb and they're defenseless and they're delicious. And in this way, they need a shepherd. We are like sheep, are we not? God says so. David struck this theme again and again in his psalm. Psalm 23, you know that one. The Lord is my what? He's your shepherd. Well, what does that make you? It makes you a sheep, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. That's the shepherd that we have. Or Psalm 100, verse 3 and 4. Know that the Lord is God. It is he who made us. And we are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Isaiah takes it to another level. He speaks about our sin, doesn't he? He says in Isaiah 53, all we like what? Sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of us all. When Jesus died on the cross, when he was up there suffering and dying, when his blood was flowing out and when he was under the wrath of God, it was because we're like sheep going astray through our sinfulness and wickedness. And Jesus took our wrath, our punishment on himself because of our sheep-like nature. Well, if we're sheep, that means we need shepherds. And, and so God provided that there would be under-shepherds. Israel's kings were called to be shepherds. David shepherded God's people in integrity of heart, it says in one scripture. And so also the Levites, the priests, were meant to shepherd the people through their hearts, through a teaching of the word of God. The problem was, for the most part, the shepherds of Israel failed them. The kings were wicked. The Levites and the priests were ignorant and wicked and selfish. And so the people were very frequently like sheep without a shepherd. Israel's shepherds, therefore, were judged for how they shepherded the flock. In Ezekiel 34, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who only take care of themselves. And so this was a consistent, repeated theme in Israel's history. God's response through the prophets was, I'm going to raise up somebody to shepherd them in integrity of heart, and it's going to be a son of David. David will shepherd them. Micah 5.2, it says, But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, though you are least among the rulers of, of Israel, out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Who is that? That's Jesus Christ, the son of David. And so in Jeremiah 23 after Jeremiah says the same thing, Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. He says, the days are coming, this is Jeremiah 23, 5, when I will, I will raise up to David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. And in his days, Judah will be, ca- will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which that shepherd will be called, the Lord our righteousness. And so Jesus came to be a shepherd to people who had no shepherd. They were harassed, and they were helpless. The NAS is very strong about this. Distressed and downcast. The word harassed means flayed, like like their their flesh is being ripped apart. Imagine, if you would, uh, briars that are this long and just digging into the sides of the sheep. And so if they move in any direction, it tears their skin. It tears their flesh. That's the picture that Jesus has. And so these are sheep that are tormented. They're tormented politically. The Romans dominate them and see them as only only as slaves to row in their galleys, perhaps, and give them tax money and keep quiet. They were tormented physically by disease and death over which they had no power. They were tormented religiously by people like the House of Annas. He was more like a mafia leader with his, his hands financially in every pot. And all of it was for his own wealth. And so that's why Jesus twice cleansed the temple, because the temple had been made into a den of robbers. They had no shepherd. They were tormented spiritually. If you could have seen in the spiritual realm this large group of people and the demonic host around them like flies, harassed by demonic forces of evil, by Satan himself, harassed and helpless. More than anything, though, what was the greatest danger? It was the wrath of God. They were under the wrath of God for their sins. There was a record of each of their lives so accurate and so careful that nothing was missed. As, as long as your arm and 50 times longer of each act of sin, each thought, each word. And they stood under the wrath of God and there was nothing that they could do. They were harassed and they were helpless, defenseless against the coming wrath. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 2. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Do you know what that means, an object of wrath? You're designed for destruction like a lightning rod ready to be struck by the wrath of God, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So Jesus had that vision of their condition, but he didn't leave it there, did he? He was moved by compassion and he spoke. In verse 37, he said to his disciples, and by the way, I feel he's speaking today, isn't he? If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, he's talking to you today. He's speaking to you. And what is he saying? The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Realize Christ's strategy. He's not going to just come and die on the cross and be raised from the dead. But a gospel is going to be preached. The gospel of the kingdom of God is going to be preached, he says in Matthew 24, 14, to every tribe and language and people and nation, and then the end will come. And so he turns very strategically. Just a key moment in verse 37, turning to his disciples, he says to them, the harvest is plentiful. Do you see this key moment? It's not just me. Now, in Isaiah, it says, I've trodden the winepress alone. There were some things only Jesus could do. But in this matter, the matter of the ministry of reconciliation, he turns to his disciples and involves them. The harvest is plentiful, he says to them, but the workers are few. Now, from the very beginning, that's why he called them. Remember? In Matthew 4:19. walking by the sea, sees Peter and John and James and Andrew, and they're working by the sea, and he says, Come follow me, and I'll make you what? I will make you fishers of men. Right from the beginning, this was his, his strategy, his intention. Now, what does he mean when he says the harvest is indeed or truly plentiful? What does he mean by that? Well, there's two different ways in Scripture, two different themes about the harvest. One of them is the harvest of wrath and of judgment. Listen to Joel 3, 13 and 14. It says there, Swing the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, trample the grapes, for the wine press is full, and the vats overflow, so great is their wickedness. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. And so there is going to be a harvest of judgment in which God will visit on all the wicked their sins, a harvest of judgment. So also in John the Baptist preaching about Jesus In Matthew 3, 12, it speaks of Christ and says his winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering up the wheat into his barn but burning the chaff with unquenchable fire. And so there is a harvest of wrath. But I don't think that that's what's in Christ's mind at this particular moment. The scripture speaks of another harvest, a harvest of souls for eternal life. Do you remember the account when he is witnessing to the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman? Do you remember that? And Jesus had sent his disciples on mission. All right. Now, their particular viewpoint of the mission is, we need to go into that filthy Samaritan village and buy some food fit for us to eat. That was their view of the mission. So they went in and uh, they were above and beyond the call of duty for most Jews to go into the village and buy some food. And they come back, remember the story, and they say, we got the food, let's eat. This is a paraphrase, it's not really in the NIV, but that's about what happened, all right? Master, I have something to eat. And he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. I could almost stick in the word. I have food to eat that you apparently know nothing about. Why why, why could I stick the word apparently in there? Because of how they behaved. What did they come back from that village with? What did they bring back from that village? Food. What else? Nothing. They brought nothing back. Okay? The Samaritan woman goes into the village and what does she bring back? the whole town to come listen to Jesus. Right? So he said, I have food to eat you know nothing about. Could someone have brought him food, they thought? Maybe he's got a a food source. Well, why did he send us then to that village to buy it? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. Do you not say four months more and then comes the harvest? I tell you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. What harvest is he that's talking about there? Some people think that the village was coming out at that point, and he points to them, and he says, Look at them. They're ready. They're ready. And they were ready. They came to faith in Christ when Jesus preached to them. There are thousands and thousands of people coming to Christ every single day. Some people estimate as many as 30,000 a day. 2,300 every hour coming to faith in Christ. Nobody really knows. 20 million a year. 40,000 a day, who can really say? But there's a vast harvest out there of people who will respond to the gospel if somebody will just proclaim it to them. It's prophecy, Revelation 7, 9 and 10, After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were crying out, Salvation belongs to the Lamb and all glory to Jesus for salvation. That's what they're doing. They're standing around. Well, how do they come to faith in Christ? I'll tell you right now, in Romans chapter 10, they cannot come unless they say, they call in the name of the Lord, unless they say, Lord, save me. Who's Lord? Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. So unless somebody goes and preaches to them, they can't be saved. That's the whole logic of Romans 10. How can they call on the one of whom they've never heard? And how can they hear unless somebody goes and preaches to them? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As the scripture says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Well, all right, the harvest is plentiful, but we have a problem. The workers are few. The workers are few. Now, I'm going to confess that I actually saw a movie one time called Places in the Heart with Sally Field. I don't know if you remember it. It was a story of a, of a woman who lost her husband. She was a, a widow, and in order to try to survive, I think it was during the Depression, she decides to plant a huge crop of cotton. And things are incredibly tight and basically the only way she can save her farm is if she somehow manages to get the bale the first bale of cotton to the to the gin uh, before anybody else. Well, she's competing against some very polished farmers. She's never done this before and Finally the harvest time has come. I don't know if you remember this But she's there with her two little kids a blind guy and one worker and so they're working steadily They're picking the cotton and putting it in the bag and then the camera just starts to pan back Further and further higher and higher and higher and there's this sea of white and by the time the shot is done You can't see them anymore That's what I think of when I think of this passage There are some people out there working for the Lord, but the work is so overpowering. It's so overwhelming. It's so great that They'll never get it done by themselves The harvest is indeed plentiful, but the workers are few at present, the International Mission Board has 5,400 missionaries. We just heard Jerry Rankin this week. Two days ago, he said 5,400. Okay? Well, what's exciting is over 1,000 of them have been appointed in the last year. That's amazing. And so more and more people are coming. But understand this. That 53 or 5,400 represents 0.03% of the total number of Southern Baptists in this country. 0.03%. So that doesn't mean 3 out of every 100 or 3 out of every 1,000 or 3. It means 3 out of every 10,000 is a missionary supported by our churches the harvest is plentiful but the workers are few now what does he tell us to do look at verse 38 it says ask the lord of the harvest therefore to send out workers into the harvest field this is amazing christ's first command isn't we got to get going you need to move there's a sense of urgency a sense of desperation don't you see that crowd out there don't you see those people they're lost they're dying you better go that's not the first thing he tells him to do. What is the first thing he tells him to do? Ask. Pray. Ask the Lord of the harvest. Get down on your knees. And why? Because your praying is far more effective than your going. It is true. You will accomplish more on your knees than going. Oh, you must go. We'll get to chapter 10 next week. Because he did send them out, didn't he? It's one of the problems with the chapter division. Chapter 9, chapter 10, two different things. No, they're not two different things. We'll see it next week. So we need to go. But he said, first, We need to pray. We Americans are so in love with our plans and our schemes and our strategies and our promotions and our videos and all kinds of things. That is not what's going to get it done. He said, get down on your face and ask the Lord of the harvest to, and the Greek is very strong, thrust out, eject, evict workers into the harvest field. Very, very strong. (laughs) Some people have to be kind of ripped from their lives and sent out into the harvest field. I don't know what it's like. Maybe it's like a harvest for yourself where you're hanging on and then, you get pulled out and sent into the harvest field. He said, get on your face and begin asking the Lord of the harvest. Now, who's the Lord of the harvest? Well, is it not God? Did not God the Father send his son into the world? But yet, at the same time, Jesus said in John 20, as the Father has sent me, even so, what? I am sending you. So could it be that Jesus at this present time is the Lord of the harvest? I don't think they'll fight over it. Could it be there on the same page? And so we pray to the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, and we ask that he would send out laborers into the harvest field. Now, what application can we take for this text? Well, first of all, it would be wrong for me to read over this text and assume that every single person listening to me has trusted in Christ. All the things that I said about you, if you're not a Christian, you're under the wrath of God, you're a vessel of wrath, and you must trust in Christ. Could it be that you are right now actually part of the harvest? That you've never given your life to Jesus Christ? You can't let today go by without trusting in Jesus. You'll have an opportunity in a minute to come talk to me. If you sense that you are not born again through the Spirit, don't let today go by without being part of His harvest. But I want to say something more. I heard it said recently that in every pew there is a broken heart. I don't know if it's true. Maybe each of you can get together pew by pew and find out who it is. Who's got the broken heart? I don't really know. But I tell you this. Jesus is compassionate. He is able to see your heart. He's able to look to whatever it is you're facing, whatever issue. And he's able to minister to it. There is nothing that he cannot do. And so I would urge you to come to the Lord of the Harvest first for healing, for a broken heart or for whatever issues you're facing. But now I want to get your eyes up off yourself. So much of the grief we face is because we're not in God's will. We're not living the way God wants us to live. Is it not clear from this text that God is calling us as a people, calling this church, First Baptist Church, to be involved in the harvest that he's involved in? You know, I've given you five steps. I want to get off my text here for a minute so you pay attention to what I'm saying. God has brought this church through a lot of things in the last two years. I'm not going to speak in detail about what they are, but I think it's all been, all been about unity for the purpose of the harvest. As I think about it, it's been about unity for the purpose of a great harvest. A harvest so great that a divided church that isn't quite sure what to do with the Word of God cannot do it. It's not about this or that or the other issue. It's about this harvest, isn't it? And so I want to challenge you to think again about your own life. I want you to think about your own contribution to the advancing kingdom of heaven. I want you to realize that God desires that each one of his disciples be involved in this harvest. What is your ministry to the harvest? How are you involved personally? What are you doing? Now, it, it was a while ago, it would be easy for a pastor like me to stand up and say, application is always the same, a mission. You don't even need to think about it. It's always the same applications: Pray, give, and go, right? Always the same. Now it's more complex than that now. We need the whole body of Christ using all of their spiritual gifts in order to accomplish all the mission that God has for us to do. He's given us a comprehensive ministry as well. He's called us to minister to Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I believe that's a paradigm for how every local church should see its contribution to the advancing kingdom of heaven. What is our Jerusalem? We've got work to do right in this area. We've got work to do. And it could be that some of the broken hearts and all that is because we're off of God's plan and we're not using our time and our energy and our money for what God would have us to do. I tell you what, you come and you give your strength and your gifts and your time to the Lord and you will never regret it. You're on a winning team. It's in prophecy. You're going to win. If you come and help Jesus build his kingdom, every tribe and language and people and nation will most certainly trust and believe. People from each of those groups will trust and believe. But what are you doing? Are you using your gifts? Many of you who know me know that I sometimes use analogies like a a sawmill or a gristmill, let's say, by a river. Have you heard me talk about this before? This church is like a a gristmill by a river. And as as the water runs by and turns that big wheel and it turns other cranks, then we are able to grind the, the wheat into flour, right? The more water runs by, the more wheat we can grind. Okay? Well, if it's drought, like it's been recently in Durham, that will turn very fast, does it? And we don't grind much wheat. We can't do many ministry projects. We can't do much. We need more water to flow by, by my analogy. And so if we're going to keep it going, I, I feel like the, there's a bunch of blocks of ice further up. And they're, they need to thaw under the heat of the conviction of God. And then there's going to be water flowing down by that factory, and it's going to turn, it's going to hum. We'll be able to minister to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest field. Could it be that some of you sitting in these pews right now, right today, are called by God to go as a cross-cultural missionary to an unreached people group? Don't excuse yourself too quickly because we actually had a family go out right in mid-career bringing four young kids to go to an unreached people group. Right in the middle of a career. It can be done. Could be that college students have come thinking, I'm going to do this or that, but God is calling you to a cross-cultural mission. Could it be that senior adults, you've reached the point where you have more freedom than you ever had in your life before. God is calling you to be a cross-cultural worker. Uh, Perhaps to support a missionary, maybe even to go in a way that you could never have even imagined Could it be that God is calling you to be part of the harvest? We're going to close now and I'm going to ask that you would just take a minute and pray and think And if God is laying something in your heart and you you just have a burden I want you to come up and, and kneel down here and pray Or just bow before him and say, Lord, I feel that I've been like that block of ice I have not used my gifts, my talents, my money as would glorify your kingdom I've not been sold out for you the way I want to and so the wheels are turning too slowly at this local church. And as I said before, if you've never trusted in Christ, come talk to me without fail. Let's close in prayer.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from TwoJourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at TwoJourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians